Hello and thank you for joining us for another Grazia Life Advice podcast. This is Rhiannon Evans and it's great to be with you as always. There are many different ways you might be familiar with this week's woman worth listening to. I'm Jessie Cave. I'm an actress, writer and illustrator and I'm the guest on this week's Grazia Life Advice podcast. Jessie Cave was Lavender Brown in the Harry Potter films. She's regularly on our screens doing panel shows and comedy and her first novel Sunrise is out now. It's a story about grief and sisterhood that's rooted in her own experience. Tragically, my brother died two years ago. There was no way I could have written a book in the last two years where I didn't touch on grief or hit grief hard on the head. Right now, Jessie's working hard on promoting the book, which means spending more time than she'd like on social media and also having to deal with comparing yourself with others. When I see how you know elegantly some people are doing social media just by, oh, I've written a book and that's it, and then aren't seen again for months, but they have it in the bestseller list for three months at a time. I'm like, how did you do that? <laughs> how? <laughs> yeah, we can't all be Richard Osman. Exactly. And we'll hear Jessie's thoughts on becoming a mother as the result of a one night stand. I see now women of my age in this dilemma of when am I going to have the baby? When am I going to have, and they keep putting it off. I kind of, I, I say way too quickly, you know, that's stupid. There's never going to be a right time. It's another fascinating chat with lots to think about. So let's get into it. Please welcome Jessie Cave. Hi, Jessie. How are you today? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, great. I'm so excited to speak to you about your book. It's your debut novel. It's called Sunset. It's been doing really, really well. And I just wondered if you could tell people, if they don't know and they haven't encountered it yet, what the book is about. So Sunset is a story about two sisters, Hannah and Ruth. And they're incredibly close. They're best friends. They're completely codependent on each other. And every year they go on a holiday together, like a budget holiday that Hannah pays for. And um, that's like a ritual they do. And on one of these holidays, unfortunately, there's a terrible accident. The book is about how Ruth carries on, really, and puts one step in front of the other and learns to live without her sister. Yeah, yeah. And... You know, I know it's a you know it's a question some novelists don't like, and you can tell me if that's the case. But how much of the your personal life did you take into your into your book? Obviously, people know um, you and your sister do a lot of stuff together. I mean, obviously, did you lean on the kind of ha- knowing what it's like to have a really close sister, for instance? Yeah, I mean, it's my first work of fiction, so usually I write very much about my own life and my own love life and children and um, experiences, but. This is definitely a work of fiction, although it's very much rooted in truth. Um, I'm I'm absolutely um, addicted to my sister in a way. I love her so much and we work together, you know, all the time. And um, I begged for a little sister and I got one. Um, so, yeah, there's loads of our relationship in there. And we're definitely a mixture of both Hannah and Ruth. And Bibi was a huge inspiration for the the book and helped me with the first draft and I could not have done it without her and then also um tragically my brother died two years ago so I have on you know I have first-hand experience of what it's like to lose a sibling and it's just the worst and um there was no way I could have written a book in the last two years where I didn't touch on grief or hit grief hard on the head. Um, And 
now I realise with some distance between having finished it and talking about it that it's a book that was written in shock and trauma and um, the book takes place over eight months, so eight months after the accident and what, what she does in those eight months. And, yeah, that's basically what my eight months were like. So, yeah, it's fiction, but it's absolutely my experience of grief and also my a kind of a celebration of sisterhood for me. I know a lot of people aren't that close to their siblings and don't value that bond as much as I do, but I think having lost one, I now treasure that relationship and I realise how lucky I am and I was. So Ben, my brother, is the reason for this book and I hate having to even say that sentence, but he is now kind of a driving force in my life and, and my creative life. Yeah. And I think, you know, you you kind of talk about it as almost like necessity might be the wrong word. You know, you couldn't have not, that could not have not come out in your fiction. But it's probably, I would say, as a reader, nice to experience a book that talks about grief and is about, you know, has that as a central hook of, of the book rather than, you know, traditionally things that we, we read about, you know, love, m- you know, thrillers, m- you know, mysteries all the time. You know, you don't get a lot of books like that. And also there are very few books out there about sibling loss. Yeah. And I really struggled to find any that helped me. And I'm not saying this book is going to help people who've lost siblings or people who have experienced grief, but it is about that. And mm. I think when you have gone through something so particular and isolating because it is something that's very rare not very many people experience this Mm. luckily because it's and it should be rare you know people don't die young usually um yeah I I really struggled to find something that I could read and feel comforted by that somebody else was feeling the same things as me the same anger Mm. the same messiness and but at the same time also I hope it's a funny book and there's lots to laugh about in there and yeah Um, when I was first given this opportunity to write fiction after only having written comedy, the publisher, I think, thought I was going to write a romantic comedy. And I think I kind of strung that along for a bit, thinking that's what I was doing. (laughs) And obviously it's not, but there is a a love story in there, even though it's a completely weird one and it's not traditional at all. There is is a kind of romantic comedy element to it too Mm. in a twisted, dark way. And I hope that it doesn't put people off because I have got a lot of messages from people saying I've cried five times. Why have you done this to me? Um, <laughs> that I think it, I hopefully have put stuff in there that is laughable too and, and shows that there is joy to be had still. Even after the worst thing has happened, you can still find a way of being happy. And I think that's something that I really struggle with mm. um, because I am happy and I am enjoying my life, but I've also experienced one of the worst things that can happen so Mm. that doesn't add up for me and I find that really confusing and I almost feel guilty for feeling happy sometimes um, because how can I be when this has happened but that you know you can be you can find happiness some in some places whilst also being devastated still yeah and and you know you touched on your comedy there people might know your illustrations your stand-up your your kind of dramatic work you're currently in buffering aren't you which is an itv2 tell us about that show and and did you enjoy filming that yeah it was a complete antidote to writing um and also my years of being kind of a desperate 
struggling one-line actress, it is quite <laughs> nice to be in something where I'm in all of the episodes and I'm one of the main parts, which yeah. is weird. But I do feel I've, I've cheated, really, because I didn't... I knew the writers. They, they've they known me for years from comedy and kind of friends with them. So I don't feel like I... I, I feel like I've accidentally got this role and they're <laughs> just being nice to me. Um, so I do feel a bit... Um, it's strange to be in something and to not feel like I, I should be there. But I, I am, it's a lovely sitcom. Yeah. It's, a, it's um, about a group of friends living together and their love lives and the weird things they do. And I really love doing it because I've never lived with friends. I've never um, had worries like that. I got pregnant quite young, so I haven't had this experiences that these this group of friends had. Um, so I loved doing it because I kind of could pretend. Yeah, no, it's great. I'd definitely go and check it out if you've not managed to catch it yet. We have you here, though, to talk about your best pieces of advice. And as ever, we've got six from you. And uh, <laughs> the two, the first two inter, intertwine, but let's go for the first one. The first piece of advice is don't compare yourself to others. Now, tell me how that has manifested in your life. Well, I think I managed to get away um, with comparing myself to others in my 20s quite successfully. I was a bit of a lone ranger and didn't follow up on what people were doing. Mm -hmm. I think I I overdid it in my very early 20s as an actress because I'd just done Harry Potter. I thought I was going to go on and be like a serious actress Mm -hmm. and then I got no work. So I spent a lot of my time on IMDb Pro looking at what women around my age in a similar field were doing and how many roles they got by the time they were 25 and (laughs) going slightly crazy. And so I kind—I was very clever and I did a, um, I banned myself from IMTV Pro and that really helped. And I, luckily at that time as well, there wasn't, there was Twitter, mm. but it, there wasn't a big, Instagram wasn't around yet. And um, I was really lucky that I, there wasn't a, a constant source of images to look at and compare myself to. So I managed to build up my writing and my own life away from social media and away from knowing what other actresses were doing, mainly because I couldn't compete anymore because I wasn't working. Um, (laughs) So I managed to do that. And it did mean that when I created work, it probably was naturally more authentic because there was no one to compare it to. And I hadn't watched any other people's work, so I didn't know what was around. So Mm -hmm. I couldn't kind of secretly let that seep into my work. And the work I created was really odd. (laughs) And that's probably because... It was just there was I didn't have any bearings. Yeah. So I'm really glad that was a period of time which um, was was quite safe in a way. Yeah, I think a lot of people my age are like I. We, me and my friends always talk about how we're thrilled that Facebook didn't turn up till we were kind of like early twenties. I mean, you know, all of it, and it's so hard to switch off from now. You're the first person I've ever heard who had to switch themselves from off from IMDb. So congratulations <laughs> on that. <laughs> I thought you were about to say Instagram, yeah, but how do you do, how do you deal? Because you are on Instagram now and you do share a lot on there. Do you ever ban yourself from that now? I tried at one point to have a time limit thing. So you mm. only look at it for a certain time. But then I found myself just extending the time limit and I just don't even care anymore. I mean, I tried doing the screen time thing and seeing how much screen time I had. I just think there's just no point. This is my job. I It is my job to share and to promote and mm. to 
see what other people are doing and enjoy and see what shows are going on. And there's no point in me banning myself from it because I need it. And I don't have that luxury of not sharing things really because I want people to see my work. Mm. I I probably will give myself a break when I'm like, okay, well, the book has sold as many copies as it's going to (laughs) sell. When everyone in the UK has one. (laughs) Or or just I've done my job. I've done my best now. There's only so much I can do. Whereas I still am very much in the middle of that. So I'm, I'm, I've succumbed to the thought that I'm, my screen time is going overboard. I'm not successful enough or known enough to have a book out and then to be like, let it be, see what happens. You go and fly on your own. I need to tell people I've done it. I need people to read it. I'm not successful enough to, you know, have a, have a best-selling novel without doing any vlogging. That's just not possible. I'm not Kazira Kazira Ishiguro. I can't even say his name. I'm not Dolly Alston. I can't do that. So um, when when I see how you know elegantly some people are doing social media just by oh I've written a book and that's it, and then aren't seen again for months, but they have it in the bestseller list for three months at a time. I'm like, how did you do that? <laughs> how? Yeah, we can't all be Richard Osman. Exactly. Oh my God, I did his panel show the other day and he very sweetly was like and you've got a book out too and I said yes but it's it's your book is um it's quite terrifying and how well it's done and he he got the notification through within our conversation that it was now just gone on sale in Iceland and basically it's gone on sale on sale in every single country there is there is it's possible for there to be a book on sale and on top of that it's being adapted by Steven Spielberg and so I just felt kind of completely not worthy of him being near me with the success <laughs> of his his fiction make some room Richard come on I know you're um and so we, I said they were linked your second piece of advice is compare yourself to others so so explain yourself for the contradiction well I now I'm in my 30s and I am a little bit more at peace with myself and my abilities and my failures and I don't think there's any harm in seeing how well other people are doing. And mm-hmm. I'm not as scared anymore about people doing better than me. And I think sometimes it's quite healthy to have an element of competition and rivalry because that spurs you on. Mm. If everyone just didn't compare themselves to others and then suddenly, you know, sat back and enjoyed things, there would probably be less interesting work being created. I think there's something quite powerful about jealousy and that does it does um give me an incentive definitely so if I see someone doing really well and I also really respect them and enjoy their work I do think it's quite good to sometimes think okay how did they do that and what's their time management like and what's in their life and encouraging them to do this and why are they doing this and I quite like analyzing success in a way Mm. not that I'm this kind of mad success hungry person but I am learning to enjoy the success of others and not feel panicked about my own levels of failure. <laughs> <laughs> Your career is so multifaceted, though. I mean, what when you say, oh, you know, push myself onto the next thing, what is the next thing for you? Are you thinking about another book or is it another role? What is it? Acting definitely isn't a um, driving force in my life just because I don't get that many auditions or much work like I said I you know the Mm. roles I get are usually playing quirky girls with big glasses and I'm fine with that and I'm also I quite like doing a line here and a line there and Mm. leaving after a couple of hours 
but that's a luxury and I'm very privileged to be in that position and it also doesn't happen very often mm. so writing is my day job and my illustrations are my day job my print shop is my main source of income really so yeah I'm a I'm a I'm a hustling businesswoman who's just needing to make rent. Um, I'm lucky that I have found writing young. I've been writing for 15 years now and I've been Mm -hmm. trying to get many things made for TV and it's always failed. So I think a goal in my life would be to finally get something on screen that I've written. But again, my expectations and hope is very low. So I go with whatever is available to me and whoever has given me a little bit of encouragement and and you, that is vital if you don't have somebody every so often just saying, no, you you should do this. You should go with this idea or it's kind of you are you do find yourself at the starting line, never quite leaving it. So I'm in a weird space right now where I desperately want to start writing my second book. But I also need to make sure that I have enough money to 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 feed the children. So it's whatever is uh, the the quickest way of doing that. Yeah. <laughs> No, I totally understand that. Um, Could you share your third piece of advice, please, Jessie? So my third piece of advice, even though I'm not always one to stick to it, is everything in moderation. And that is down to my mum. My mum gives this piece of advice. Um, My mum is an incredible woman. She's one of the most balanced, organised, hardworking, efficient people who has just been the biggest source of inspiration. And um, she's never gone crazy (laughs) with anything. So she's just managed to just have have a little bit of everything and just carry on and never go wild, never have a breakdown. Just, she just, you know, slow and steady. And that level of control is, you know, quite intimidating for people like me and my sister who are quite into pleasure and food and drink and stuff so but she is whenever I've gone slightly mad with something or I've overdone it in certain areas I always look at her and I'm like no you've done it so right you've done it so right (laughs) and as I'm getting older I am realizing mothers are just usually right Mm. when they tell you the boring stuff it's usually right yeah that is annoying now you're the mother of three you're going to be the one that's right how do you feel about that well I can see already with my daughter that she's got this element of wildness about her and she's she loves food and loves drink and (laughs) obviously not alcohol but she just loves I don't know why I said that she doesn't love drink (laughs) she loves bottles she loves milk um but she loves she loves I mean all kids love sweets, but I can sense with my daughter, given that I had this, um, I don't know, I just, I, it's, it's such a delicate way of doing, you've got to be so careful with little girls. Mm. And I just want to make sure that I don't mess her up yeah. with food issues or weight issues because I was just, it's nothing, no fault of my parents. It was just the unfortunate time of being a teenager in the uh, Britney Spears age. Yeah. And I just don't want her to go through any of that trauma. So I'm already looking at her and being quite, right, what am I going to do when she's 12? What am I going to do? Whereas my boys, like Donnie, is much more balanced. And um, yeah, I don't know. All I care about is them finding jobs that they like and they work hard for. And Mm -hmm. I think that that's one thing that my parents are great about. They, even though I come from quite um, an academic background, they never push me in any way. Mm. and just wanted me to work hard so 
yeah, I hopefully they do that too. Yeah. And what do you find hardest to moderate? Is it food? Is it fun? Is it, um, you know, what what is it in your life? I worry too much. I definitely don't have enough fun. And that is something I'm, I would love to rectify. But then I think you can't have everything. You can't have a job and three kids and a relationship mm-hmm. and friends and an amazing social life and go to the gym. And you can't do all of it. I know yeah. that. So, yeah, in on a more basic level, my my main addiction is chocolate. I I kind of have way too much chocolate every day. I mean, it is really dark chocolate, but still, it's it's too much. Um, <laughs> but I'm very clever at getting the healthiest form of something bad, mm. and then like devouring it and having way too much of it. Yeah. So I've I've taught myself to like 100% chocolate because I know it's got no sugar in, even though it's hugely it's got just basically fat. <laughs> I, I have a huge bar of that after dinner and it's just slowly crept up the amounts just more and more each day so yeah I definitely I get into a routine and then I just kind of push the corners until I've stretched the whole thing (laughs) I think that's really relatable (laughs) we'll be back with more from Jesse after this I'm still here with Jesse and I wonder if you could share your fourth piece of advice please kind of touched on it but it's work hard to get what you want Uh, The alternative was going to be hang on in there and the last one clinging on will get it. Mm. Because I have been around so many creative people and very often the most talented people don't get the thing Mm. or don't get the break. And people who are less talented but, you know, fight harder or louder, they get there. And uh, I like to believe that if you hang on long enough, eventually you're, you will get there. If you keep fighting, if you keep working hard, eventually you'll get seen. Somebody said this to me maybe 10 years ago now when, when we were talking about acting and how, mm. how awful the industry is. There was an actress who suddenly got a big break at 34 or something. And um, at the time I was only 25. Or, um, and I was like, yeah, see, she's, she's hung on till she's 34 now. She's, she's got everything she wants, you know? And um, I don't know if this actress has continued to work. I don't know if she ever worked again after this big break, but I like having people to follow when you think of, I love I love stories that you hear about in Hollywood of, oh, John Hamm didn't make it till he was 39. And, yeah. you know, I love that kind of thing. So I do believe good work gets seen eventually. And there's massive comfort in that, isn't there? Because sometimes you can just feel so, whatever industry in, depressed when you think I'm as good or I'm working twice as hard and I'm not getting anywhere and there is comfort in knowing that eventually hopefully things always do pay off and it comes back to the comparing yourself to others thing and a lot of work has been done before you know there's not many original ideas so that can be quite overwhelming and if you're somebody who overthinks anyway before you even start, you're you're thinking well that's already been done before yes it's a good idea but it's already been done before in this way and this person's done that and it can be so debilitating to think about your plan and how it's not going right and what you should be doing and what you're not doing when actually I think the main thing is consistency. If you're consistent with your output and you have your own goal in mind, by the time you you get to that date or that deadline and maybe it hasn't gone your way, maybe you haven't finished it or whatever, 
it doesn't matter because you had that goal in, in your in your mind and you and you've you've got there, you've worked towards it. So the result might be something completely different. Like I never intended to write a novel. I never intended to write this particular story, but I'm so glad with what I've come up with and it's completely different to what I thought it would be and what I would be doing at this stage in my career. But I'm so glad that everything has happened on this journey to get me here. Best laid plans and all that. Mm. Your fifth piece of advice is just a stretch in the morning, which I love. But is it is it as simple as that or is it something that's really important to you every day? No, I mean, I would love to be someone who stretches in the morning. I, I never stretch. <laughs> I wish I could. And I just think it if even if you just do one simple stretch, you feel better. And yet mm. no one does it or only, you know, people who go to yoga all the time do it. It's just such an amazing thing to do and I never do it and I feel so good having done it. So eventually I'm going to get into this, hopefully. <laughs> How often do you do it? Do you sometimes you're like, no, I'm, I'm on it now and then? Well, throughout lockdown, I I used to go to this thing called Barry's Boot Camp, which is like an extreme exercise yeah. treadmill thing. And I would only go occasionally but and because it's too expensive, but I loved it because it'd be an hour of contained time to myself that I would do. Um, the gym is a distant memory now and Barry's boot camp is a distant memory, largely because of lockdown. And then I got pregnant. And so I was, so basically during lockdown, we did Joe Wicks, which was hilarious, but I couldn't, <laughs> couldn't keep up with Joe. So I started, I found this woman on YouTube who does 10 minute exercise videos and I couldn't, I can't ever complete 10 minutes. I only managed to get to around six and then I'm like, okay, bye. And if I can do a six minute video every few days, I feel like I'm nailing it. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's good. <laughs> I think that's, that's very enough. good. That's enough. Yeah. Definitely. Um, and your sixth piece of advice I wanted to ask you about this is there is never a right time to have a baby. So people might know from your stand-up uh, and, and things you spoke about before, your kind of path into motherhood. But tell me about why that piece of advice is important to you. Well, weirdly, my mum said it before I got pregnant accidentally after a one-night stand. Um, yeah. I'm one of five, so my mum has always been very loud about how great being a mother is. She loves it. Mm. She it happened very naturally for her. She gave birth five times without painkiller. I mean, she's a wonder woman and she's, it's just a natural thing for her. So I always wanted to be a mother from a really young age and I wanted to run an orphanage. I wanted to adopt. I wanted to do it all. Um, I joke it's because I wanted to be Angelina Jolie, but (laughs) (laughs) maybe not so much now. So when I did get pregnant accidentally, my mum was very quick to you know, swear and stuff. But then she was like, well, there is never going to be a right time. Mm. And it's true because it didn't affect my career. Obviously, I'm very lucky, but I just made sure that I kept up with my own stuff and worked as hard as I could. And I I mean, it's hard because I've never had maternity leave. Mm. But at the same time, I'm incredibly lucky that I have a job, which means I'm quite flexible. But yeah, so when it came to my second and my third, I didn't really overthink it. Mm. And I see now women of my age in this dilemma of when am I going to have the baby? When am I going to have And they keep putting it off mm. or think, oh, I'll have it when this is ready and this is planned and we're fully married or my job is where I want it to be or, you know, I've got this, or I've got that. And I kind of, I, I say 
way too quickly. You know, that's stupid. There's never going to be a right time. There's always going to be an, another thing that comes up mm. that you kind of want to do. And yeah, I probably lost out on some things. I probably would have, I don't know what I would have done, but I probably didn't, I definitely didn't go up for things or was a bit tired in the, the latter bit of the pregnancies, which meant that I didn't do as much. But I I don't think there is ever a right time. I think mm. it's always going to be a bit hard. It's never going to be an easy time to have a baby. <laughs> no. And I mean, we say there's never a right time to have a baby. There might be a worse time. I mean, you were one of the thousands of mums who had a child during lockdown and, and kind of had to deal with that particular scenario. I know you spoke a lot about that, but how, you know... How did you find that in comparison to your other your other births? Um, well, I just threw out every single step. So the scans on my own, the largely a lot of the labour on my own. Well, obviously with one midwife. But I kept thinking, oh my God, if this was my first, I would be traumatised for life. I would yeah. be absolutely traumatised because it's just so clinical and cold and inhuman the, the lack of support and it you're you're in a rating room with people in masks and sitting yeah. away from you and everything is done from a distance and it's one of the biggest things that can happen to you having this I cried in the scans on my own mm-hmm. like I mean if that was your if that was my first I would have just just terrible terrible mm-hmm. it's such a hard time anyway and then if you're also got all of this um yeah, this this separation between the man and the woman from the early stages is just, I think it's really awful. Mm. Yeah, horrendous. And I agree, I think now they're looking back already, they're saying, aren't they, the mistakes were made and some continue to be made in some places. Some places are still being very strict with their restrictions. Mm. Um, so really tough. Yeah, it was otherworldly, I think, in the ward, especially because I was induced. And you just have these women on, you, you, you hear them behind the curtain and we're all on our own, all in our own private pain, mm-hmm. all wishing someone was with us. And then, but I mean, it was just, it was, it was, it, it felt like I was in a weird, like film, surreal mm-hmm. film. Yeah. Uh, we always finish on a worst piece of advice. You can learn something from, from that. Tell us what yours is. <laughs> well, this one is my, I think I, I, genuinely don't believe it um, Mm. when people say patience is a virtue because I just don't think it's true I think it's better to be in a rush sometimes it's better to have a sense of urgency about things that you actually want what's the point in waiting around for something good to happen like make it happen yourself Mm -hmm. don't wait for someone to give you a break don't wait for someone to give you an opportunity or for something miraculously good to happen out of thin air because it just won't happen so I've always been impatient. I mean, it's so funny because my daughter, um, whenever we're talking about something and she's like, I want to get there, I want to do this. And I joke, you know, be patient, be patient. (laughs) She started replying to me, patient doesn't make it. Patient doesn't make it. (laughs) I have no idea where she got that from. But I kind of now use it as a mantra because it doesn't, it doesn't make it. People who, you know, get in there quick, they're the ones who make it. So I'm trying to live by that. Also, it's it's nice to be patient and calm about things and to believe good things are going to happen. But I think if you really want something, then you should fight for it. 
Yeah, do you have that as a poster yet? Because I think I'll no, totally... I should. Yeah, <laughs> let's put that. Let's put that. I can't. Look, I look forward to seeing that on Instagram and uh, picking yeah, that up. Yeah, thank that's you. Great. <laughs> her new one is because she's really clumsy. I started saying, "You're so clumsy," and I can see her trying to work out her new saying. And this morning it was, um, "Clumsy doesn't mean frumpy." I was like, <laughs> "When have you ever heard the word frumpy?" But I can. I don't really understand. But I think she kind of thinks that. I'm trying to say to her that clumsy means something bad. Yes. That's what she's trying to say. <laughs> so sweet. That is adorable. Jessie, your book Sunset is out now. Thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you very much for having me. And that was comedian, writer and illustrator Jessie Cave. Thanks to her for taking the time to chat. And of course, thank you to you for being with us. Just time for our usual plea. Please, if you've enjoyed this episode, rate and review Grazia Life Advice wherever you get your podcasts. And share this episode with a friend, maybe a hardcore Harry Potter fan wondering whatever happened to Lavender Brown. Take care for now. See you next time.